Hello, Chris here with another installment of the Make It Podcast. And uh, people always ask me, Chris, how can Bonsai Creative help me? Well, let me tell you, as advisory producers and brand strategists, we help in many ways. But the one thing that is consistently missing from indie film budgets is branding and marketing spend. And uh, that's where we come in. We develop strategies that help you answer the following questions amongst many others, but uh, we'll start with these three. What makes your film attractive to buyers? Do you know your audience? Does your audience know you? What relatable word or trend or product can your film hook into? So if you'd like these and many other questions answered, visit bonsai.film, so B-O-N-S-A-I.film to schedule a free discovery call today. You can also find us on Twitter and on Instagram, and you can schedule from there too. So uh, leave a comment or DM us at uh, underscore Bonsai Creative. So not Bonsai Creative, but underscore Bonsai Creative, and we will get right back to you on Instagram or Twitter as well. And even Facebook. I shouldn't leave out Facebook. You can <laughs> you can search us on Facebook. Bonsai Creative, and uh, we'll come right up. So, okay, now on to today's podcast guest. On this episode, we have a conversation with producer and director Nathan Edwards. Nathan is a producer and director from Nashville, Tennessee, whose work includes the feature film Five Women in the End and multiple episodes of the digital series Morse Code, which you can watch on Vimeo. Uh, Nathan heads the Grand Divisions Production Company, a Nashville-based film and commercial production company. The company produces a variety of original and branded digital content, including Southern Storytellers, which is a web and radio play podcast series dedicated to the exploration of original screenplays by Southern writers. Nathan is currently producing a pilot for a series created by Jessica Walter and directed by David Shamban and is in development with the film entitled Hotel Cavalier, slated for production this summer. Listen, if you ever run into Nathan at a bar, this is just advice for you, by the way, now that we've wrapped the bio, if you ever run into Nathan at a bar and you want to break the ice, let him know that you like your cocktails hot. And your limes muddled. Just trust me on that one. Anyhow, please enjoy this conversation with producer and director Nathan Edwards. You're listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice knowledge and insights of professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. My name is Nathan Edwards. I am a producer and a director. Uh, I'm the director of Corby Linker's web series Morse Code, as well as various short films. And I am the producer of the feature film Five Women in the End. Um, I am currently 
wrapping up post on that feature and getting ready to start pre-production on another feature called Hotel Cavalier. Super exciting. Thank you so, so much for joining us on the Make It Podcast, Nathan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is this is great. And um, post-production is a, is a beast. Um, mm-hmm. how, how are you enjoying that so far? Oh, well, um, luckily I, I'm just managing. So I, I don't have to have, I'm, I'm not as hands-on as I might be on other projects, um, which is a nice, uh, a nice gift that was given to me, um, by the rest of the team on the film, um, where I'm just wrapping up paperwork and managing, you know, managing the post budget and, and keeping kind of all the ducks in a row while I let other people do a lot of the heavy lifting on post, which is, which is nice. Um, it's post is not my specialty. So, um, I like being on set, uh, like pre-production. And then once the film is in the can, then I don't really know what to do with myself. Well, I do want to talk about what, what the movie's about, but, but I, but I, but that kind of raises a question for me, which is, so what happens in the editing room? Are you a big part of, you know, how the final cut looks? I mean, like you're, you're working with the editor every day. How, how does post work for you for someone who really doesn't thrive or enjoy that process? No, I'm the designated jerk in post-production. <laughs> I'm the one I'm, I'm just, I'm like, I'm a note giver. Um, I mean, I'm, to be fair, I'm a producer, so I'm kind of the designated jerk throughout the whole process. But, um, but no, I, you know, in my, my role in, in post, you know, and it's different if I'm working on a short film or something that I'm a lot more engaged with. And, you know, obviously mm-hmm. if I'm, if I'm directing, that's a whole nother, that's a whole not that's a whole different thing. But when I'm producing, um, you know, which is primarily what I do, um, you know, my role in post is, you know, I let the, you know, let the director and the editors get the get the project set, you know, handle the right. creative. And then my job is to come in and kind of look at that at a high level and, and give, give feedback. I'm, I'm the one I'm, I'm the, the object, the first objective viewer or the, you know, as re- relatively objective viewer, viewer perhaps, but you know, I'm, I'm the one who, who I'm not seeing it every day. You know, I'm not there in the trenches looking at all the, all the, all the pretty little cuts that we, you know, that were found that, you know, we've married ourselves to, and we're, I'm the one who gets to come in and be like, no, that doesn't work. Got let's, it. let's do know. We need to trim that. That's too long. The sequence doesn't work. Um, so hence designated jerk. Um, have you turned your attention to, um, distribution, marketing, any of that stuff yet? Yeah. Um, Yes, we definitely have. Um, this one's a, a fun, you know, little, you know, relatively micro budget feature shot, you know, SAG ultra low budget, um, contract. Um, so, um, it's a fun space to play in, um, at least from the distribution side, cause we have a quality product, um, and we've got a couple names involved in it, um, mm-hmm. which is nice. So we have kind of the Wheaties box, model, um, that we can roll with. Um, 
So, ex- so explain that a little bit. Sorry to interject. What do you mean by the Wheaties box model? The Wheaties box model. Oh, he's you know just a couple faces for the for the uh, for the for the Blu-ray cover, the DVD <laughs> cover, the VHS box. <laughs> got um, it. Got it. We're only releasing this film on VHS. Uh, <laughs> we we will do a limited laser disc run, yes. um, but uh, we really feel like we want to be true to the true to the format. So uh. <laughs> I, I actually I actually have like a problem right now. Like I I have all these VHS tapes, and you can't find a VCR, and. Yeah. And you basically have to take the tapes to like a company that can do, you know, VHS to DVD conversion mm-hmm. um, or buy one of those players yourself, which I had one in the past. And I found it uh, generally complex to to do it. And there's no way to do it quickly. Like, no. So each tape would be a two hour process to get one tape off onto a DVD uh, and I'm talking about I have a box full of VHS yeah. tapes. You gotta, you're you're going to spend the rest of your life converting <laughs> all of your VHSs to DVDs. No, and, and the last the last uh, VHS which I was shocked. I don't even know when this was. This may have been 2017. It may have been or more recent than that. But the last uh, I was shocked to know that someone was still making. VHS players, but the wow. last company that made them stopped in like 2017 or something like that. So not not too many years ago. Do you so know which company it was? I I don't. It was like Hitachi or something like that. <laughs> of um, course it was. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was. It's always Hitachi. Yeah, but, <laughs> but I was like, I was listening to NPR one day, and they're like, "Fun fact of the day." You may you no longer VHS machines are no longer in commercial production, and I was like, they were they were still in commercial production, right? right. For how long? What? Right. We're still putting things out on VHS, except right. for Five Women in the End. We will only exactly. only only release on VHS. Totally blindsided by the news of <laughs> we're we're bringing the we're bringing the format back. Well, it makes me think, Nathan, that like, um. I should already begin the process of like converting DVDs to something else or like, like I should get a head start on converting MP3s to, you know, uh vapor max or something like whatever the next yeah. format is going to be like it. I, I don't want to find myself in the same bottleneck twice. That would be literal, literal cloud storage. Yeah. Exactly. It's the next is the next form. You're just going to have a cloud that hangs over you with all of your data. <laughs> Everywhere you go, your cloud. Just, Do you see my cloud above me? Do you see my it's cloud? Be, look it's how big be a, my cloud is. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be a social status. Yeah. It's going to be like, oh man, look, you're going to look at what a, what a sad little cloud you have. What are you, what are you, are you poor? Yeah. Are you poor? <laughs> yeah, it's going to be the way. Oh my God. That, that's too, the fact that that could be true. Um, to what, to, to what extent could that be real? Cause that's terrifying. Um, okay. I'm going to come back to that. Cause that's too, that's too, too, too tasty not to pick up with a fork. Um, so, so tell me what, this is an intriguing title, uh, five women in the end that I mm-hmm. like, it's, it, I, I hear that and, um, you know, I want to watch it. Uh, you know, we, Nick and I have a movie that we, that, uh, Blake Johnson did, 
um, Christopher Blake Johnson did All Light Will End. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the best things about the movie is the title. Like it makes you want to press play. And I always yeah. gave them, uh, and I don't mean it to sound that way, like it's a good movie, but I, but I mean that it makes, it makes you want to press play. And so does this title. Um, and so I always give them kudos on the fact that you picked a great name for your movie. Uh, and it sounds like you did too. Five Women in the End is something I hear that and I want to kind of learn more. So tell me about it. What is this movie about? Yeah, Five Women in the End, it's a great, it's a great film directed by, written and directed by Katie Amond. Um, co-written by uh bailey heineman who also plays the lead character in the katie's, film katie's really smart really yeah. smart very good yep um it is a you know it, her her shtick not that it's a shtick i think it's a super necessary thing in the film industry right now but she focuses on female driven film um mm-hmm. and it's a it's definitely that but it's uh it's this fun little it's it's a fun little film um it's it's 12 angry men in a room, except that it's five women in an apartment, uh, at, at the, at, at the possible end of the world. Um, there have been like the, the setup of it is, is, uh, and a girl's night gone wrong. Um, you know, f- f- five, uh, five cities across the United States are, are nuked, mm. um, with, with, uh, sort of dirty bombs, not like big nuclear explosion, but like dirty bomb, like bio chemical attacks kind of thing. Um, and they get stuck in this, in sort of the epicenter of, of the attack. Um, and so they get stuck in their apartment. So it's this really interesting film where the film itself is these five women dealing with, the world outside of them, which they can't experience because they will die. Mm. So they're stuck in this apartment. So it's actually seeing all of their emotional life, all of their relationship, all of their friendship grow. Cause this is a group of women who are, you know, they're, they're brought together by one, one character who you know, is friends with everyone, but they're not all, ne- they're not all necessarily friends with each other, mm-hmm. you know, like a lot of friend groups, you know, it's like, we're, you know, we hang out, these are my, you know, my whatever friends, you know, so these, you know, these are my, these are my, my Tuesday night friends that I go and hang out with and and that's who it is, but I may not be super close with, you know, someone, you know, someone in the group. And so it's, it's these women hashing out all of these relationships and growing closer through the central experience Um, and it's, it's, it's a really, really great emotional exploration of friendship, um, in really heightened circumstances. Um, right. So the circumstances that forced them into a room to work out their shit. Right. And it's just a really, it's, it's just, it, it, you know, it's the thing that I love about it is it's the juxtaposition of the relative normality of what they are going through and with the, you know, absolute chaos that's surrounding them, you know, you know, the, the things that they have to do to be able to relate to each other don't change just because the world is crumbling around them. 
Um, so we get to see those, those things and we kind of get to see all of their, you know, all of their flaws laid bare because they think they might die. So they're dealing with their own mortality, but at the same time, they're also, but, but the, but all of the issues are so normal. So, you know, as, as normal as any, you know, human issue is, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's relationships and it's romance and it's, and it's all of these, all of these issues, um, that are, you know, that they're helping each other through or having tension with each other with. And, 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 and then throughout the movie, we just have these little pieces where we get a glimpse of the outside world and how crazy it's getting. And then we come back in and we, you know, and it's just, these women trying to trying to keep it together. And it's just a really, it's a, just the juxtaposition of the film is, is, is just so interesting that it's wow. worth a watch just for that alone. Yeah. I can't wait to, to check it out and see it. And, um, this is great, man. It sounds exciting. I was immediately, uh, thought of several things, almost like, um, you know, bird box with dirty bombs, or maybe even, but comedically thinking like maybe like the last episode of Seinfeld where <laughs> George admits that he, <laughs> that he cheated in the contest because he thinks the plane is going to crash. Uh, so, so you get to these, you know, it's interesting, you know, what, what we can get out of human emotion when we think that it's all on the line. This is the last chance we're going to have to sort of, you know, pull a John Mayer and, and say what we need to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, 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 so there you go. Um, going back a little bit with you, you are from a little place called McMinnville, Tennessee. So for people listening, they have zero context for this. How, how would you, if you had to, how could you describe McMinnville, Tennessee in two sentences? McMinnville, Tennessee is a very small town. Mm-hmm. That's full one, of very that's one interesting sentence. people. <laughs> <laughs> I see, like, I see you laboring over that second sentence. I'm oh. trying to find a second. How do I yeah. not offend <laughs> my people? It is a very small town, and, and, and there probably aren't a lot of uh, people uh, with your aspirations coming out of that town, or maybe there are, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I don't want, I don't want to be assumptive. I've been there. Um, I, you know, I, I would be surprised if there were a lot of Nathan Edwards coming out of there. So how did you develop this sort of passion for film and, and passion for producing passion for directing and, and writing uh, coming from, from there? And, and, you know, what influences you, uh, did you have growing up that, that led you to this? Well, as much as, as much as I hate to admit it, I think, and my, I'll never let my parents listen to this podcast because they would not let me hear the end of it. But <laughs> I, I, my, my dad was in the air force. And so, so being, even though we're from McMinnville, I did spend a lot of time living in other places. Um, and it was, you know, for the majority of my life, it was a situation of, you know, summers, holidays were in McMinnville, but wherever we lived at the time was, was where we went to school. So we, I, I grew up mostly around the South until I was in high school. And then once I was in high school, I ended up in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, 
which was just a whole, that's, we could spend a podcast just talking about, we could have a whole podcast series talking about the differences between when you're 14 years old, going from living in the South to the Midwestern, the, the, the heartland metropolis of, of <laughs> Omaha, Nebraska, of Omaha, Nebraska population, yeah. 350,000, right. um, which to me actually was huge because, you know, I'd lived in places like McMinnville or Blyville, Arkansas or Fort Walton beach, Florida, um, which are very small places. Um, but I, you know, through, I mean, I always had creative, I, you know, I, I was always creatively minded and my, and my dad, um, I mean, I was just surrounded by creative people really. I mean, at, at the end of the day, that's really what it was. You know, my, my, my grandmother, my, my mom's mom, you know, we would go, we would go hiking or we would do something and, you know, and she would, you know, she would see a big boulder and she would, you know, pull me aside when I was eight years old and she'd say, what is that? And I'd say, it's a rock. It's a boulder. And she'd say, no, it's a buffalo. Can't you see? Mm. And she'd outline the shape of, you know, of, of the animal and the rock That's and, great. you know, kind of teach me to see things differently. Or she'd, you know, highlight the, the emotion in the face of the man in the moon. Um, you know, and, uh, and on my dad's side, my, my grandfather, he, oh, man, I mean, my, my, my dad's dad, he was an impressive dude. Mm. Um, this is a guy who had very little education. I mean, he, you know, he was not college educated by, by any stretch of the imagination. He was just a tradesman. Um, you know, he did the HVAC in, in Cinderella's castle at Disney world, um, which was obviously the coolest thing in the world to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, he built his own houseboat from the hull up. Um, you know, he was a master welder, even though he wasn't a welder by a trade. Um, you know, he was a carpenter. He was, a, I mean, he, he did everything. And, you know, when, when he passed, he passed when I was very young, but, you know, we found books on, um, quantum mathematics and, and advanced physics and, um, you know, I, there was a book on theoretical math that I found. And I mean, these are just like books in a crate in his workshop that he had, that he had written notes in. Um, oh. And this is a guy with, with a high school education. So you he know? was I actually mean, very educated. He just yeah. didn't have the formal documents yeah. to prove it. Yeah. And he had passed that. He had passed that down. I remember when he, when he passed, we, we went to his, to his workshop and, and we, uh, we had found uh, this sword and shield that was the shield that was made out of, you know, like Renaissance area, you know, kind of thing. If you think mm-hmm. about it that way, but the shield yeah. that was made out of, you know, like an oil drum that he had, he had made with my dad, like he'd helped my dad made. And then this sword that they had pounded out of steel, um, you know, that they had. Switched. So, um, and that, and those traits that, you know, he passed down to my dad and my dad was always creating, you know, my dad was built, always wanted to build tree houses. Every, every time that we would move, you know, or look for a house or whatever, he would find, he would, he would always look for houses that he could build a tree house. And so I was just always surrounded by, by very creative people. And then when I lived in Florida, um, when I, when I was, right on the cusp of adolescence, um, mm-hmm. into my early teens, I got involved in theater. 
Um, and weirdly, actually, I, um, I was part of very briefly part of a, uh, a public access children's television show. Um, <laughs> okay. I played a character named Rappy. Um, spell that rappy rappy r-a-p-p-y i was a rapping i was a my my my, i was a rapping mailman my function on the show was to deliver messages between characters Uh, (laughs) but uh, but i'm sure all the messages rhymed right they oh they rhymed but that's all they did uh i had zero rhythm uh i cannot rap i've got i i I can I can write, but it's all prose. I am not good. I'm not a poet in any way whatsoever. So how so, did you how did you win the part? <laughs> um, I won the I won the part because I think the the kid who well it, first of all it's a military town so I, it was I heard one of two stories <laughs> either the the kid who originally got cast like his parents had a big falling out with with the people who are running the show mm-hmm. or they got reassigned. So they moved. Right. Um, it's one of the two. One is or, way or more bo- dramatic or, or, than, or both or both. Or both. Yeah. Right. That big falling is, out. Caused one is way more dramatic. You know, I think I was 12 at the time. So it's like, I don't know. I can't, I can't, <laughs> I can't say either way, can you, but can you bless the microphone with one of the ROMs from this? Show? Oh God. No, I, I, <laughs> I know that it started. My name is Rappy and I'm here to say like everyone started with that, that my name is Rappy and I'm here to say, <laughs> um, you're exactly right. That is so funny. Like every, every rap for someone 12 and under starts with your name and what you're here to say. Yeah. 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 That's the preamble. Yeah. Every time. That's like, perfect. I, and it may have even been like, my name is Rappy and I'm here to say I'm here to deliver the mail today or something like that. Like it's like, like, like a slightly redundant statement. Like don't, you don't need to say that you're here to say that you're here to deliver the mail. You could just say that you're here to deliver the mail, you know, like. Do you, do you hear that screenwriters? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But that's what I did. But anyway, so I, but we, we got re-signed. Um, we, we got, we got moved, you know, when I was, you know, while that show was still going on, which was great. That's the worst thing to do. I good thing it was just public access. That's like the worst thing to try and do in a town like Fort Walton Beach, Florida is to, to try to <laughs> try to cast kids in a show. Right. Because 90% of the kids that live in that town are military kids. So right, you can't right. have consistency at all. <laughs> Not at all. My dad, my dad was an army brat and he went to, he went to like, so like 18 schools in 16 yeah. years. Yeah, it's yeah. like, you would never have the same rappy from season no. to season. <laughs> no, you may not have the same rappy from episode to episode. Right. Yeah. It's, it's like a man, this mailman, this mailman keeps changing a lot. <laughs> oh man. We wore like pastel covered, like jumpers, like, like, like rompers basically is what we were. Oh, we, God. we were basically, we were rompers. We did. No, they were rompers. I would, I will go out there and I, I will say that as a child, I played a character named rappy. I had face paint. Um, I don't remember exactly how my face was painted, but my face was painted. Um, we all had like, I don't know, something. I know I had a character, my character had a brother named Bluesy. <laughs> Rappy and Blue. So Bluesy sang the yeah. blues then. 
Yeah, all white kids in this show, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I think it should be said. All white kids. Um, Get it? <laughs> <laughs> of course. All, 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 so, all overdramatic white kids as well. But, no, we had no smooth. <laughs> we were not cool at all. <laughs> I, 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 I pray that I can scour the internet and find this. And, uh, but <laughs> I, I think the only reason I'm comfortable saying it is because I've done it. My, I've looked myself, and it's. I don't think it's there. I mean, I've, I've looked on YouTube, and Damn it's not there. Oh man! It's, but, it was, but did this give you a taste of like entertainment, like a little slice that you enjoyed? Yeah. Well, and I loved it. Now, you know, honestly, because of because uh, I'm a I'm a I don't know what I'm allowed to say on this on this podcast. Anything you want. Cool. I'm a whore. And so (laughs) I, (laughs) so we, I got to get out of school to go sign autographs at the mall. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yes, I want this. And I want this life. Um, I was like Robin sparkles from how I met your mother. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but it was, (laughs) Um, but no, I mean, we moved and, and I, and I just really, I, well, honestly, I didn't like the show is the thing is I, like, I liked, I, you know, I, I was a kid. I had fun. It was with my friends. I was part of this. It was through this community theater that I was a part of. And and I loved, I loved that. I was so happy to be, you know, acting with my friends and we got to do a show and it was something more than just like the theater that we would do. And that was great. Um, but then I moved and I still wanted to be involved. And also I didn't really, I thought the story was weak. Um, and it should be said that I, that's a hundred percent just who I was when I was 12 years old, I was like critiquing the director's direction. I was like, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like it's probably a more powerful direction to do this. That's, um, that's at like 12. Um, well, well, that's kind of the question I had though, Nate, like you're in front of the camera at 12, but at some point you, you, you flipped it and you got behind the camera was, when did, when did you decide, because it seemed like you, you clearly sort of enjoyed the notoriety and benefits of being in front of the camera. So when did that switch for you where you said, no, I like being behind the camera. Was it, are you a control freak or no? <laughs> like what, what is it? Um, what, what was it appealing to be able to see your project through yourself and not have to take direction? What, 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 gave, what, what sort of provided the impetus for that? The well, for that switch. I, I, you know, I started life as an actor and, and, um, you know, like very early, I mean, almost, almost literally started life as an actor. Cause I started acting when I was like eight. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and at one point I just realized that I was one at one, one point I realized that I spent more of my time like critiquing direction in my head at any mm-hmm. point, like in high school and college, you know, like at any point, you know, into my twenties critiquing direction or whatever in my head or like looking at the way that things were being produced and being like, this could be more efficient. Um, and then like actually listening to what, you know, a director was trying to tell me. And then, and then also just naturally I was like, you know, they're better actors, you know, I could, you know, like I could, I could, I love, you know, and I guess the, the, the second part of that story, you know, when I moved, you know, I started writing scripts for this, this little show, like handwriting scripts on wide world paper, you know, for the show to, to, to get an interesting story that I thought I would want to watch. Um, you know, and that was like my first foray into, into writing anything. And, and, 
And so, but that was always kind of a mentality. I always liked the idea of creating. I was, I was like, I, you know, I could, I think, I feel like the story could go this way and this, you know, and, and so it, it would, I think it was just kind of natural that I, you know, I want, you know, I was like, I, you know, if I want to do this professionally, I'm not going to, I like, I had no interest in, in living the actor's life. Mm. I love acting. I love it, but, um, I'm not interested in, in, the struggle, you know, I'm, I'm not interested in, in, in being someone who can, <clears throat> who, who dedicates their life to waiting tables, um, and going to acting class, um, you know, in Los Angeles and hopes that they, they land a part in what is a pretty political system. Um, right, I'd rather, right. I'd rather, you know, be behind the camera and find talent and, you know, in all facets of production, you know, from, you know, writers to directors to, you know, producers and, and actors and everything and, and, and put great teams together and make, you know, build a great, a great team, build a great production and make a great film. Um, and, and that's, and that's really kind of, you know, it, it, it really, I, I was the one and that's always, you know, I was like, I was in a band in high school. And when I was in a band, I, I was the, I was the band leader, but not because I was the best, but it was because I was like, I want this to be good. So why, like you come do this and you come do this and I won't, you know, like I'll, I'll learn bass and you can play guitar and, you know, cause you're a better guitar player than I am, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, that's always been my thing, you know, like I, like I, I want to, I want to build the best version of whatever a thing can be. Um, and so, you know, at one point I read the first short film that I ever wrote when I was in college, I wrote for myself cause I still wanted to act. Mm-hmm. And then I got it and we cast the female lead and I was like, this isn't right. Like me and her, that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So I ca- I cast myself out of the role. And I think that's when I was like, yeah, no, I should probably go behind camera. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but that's a that's a big moment because you know we've had a lot of actors. Um, we've had a lot of conversations with actors on this podcast, and one they do they talk about the struggle a lot and and what it takes from a from a mental strength standpoint and the uh, confidence you have to walk around with to to be able to hear you know, a hundred no's and get one yes. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, what it means to, um, you know, you mentioned, you know, politics, you know, what happens when, you know, you're on, uh, a feature film, uh, that you wrote, um, and, um, you want to star in it and you're a producer as well. Uh, you're able to get a name as your co-star but that person uh, will only come on if, if you know, you're replaced as the lead right. or it will only come on if they can bring in their own producers and their own casting director. Or, you know, there, there, there are all these little things that happen um, where you get humbled over mm-hmm. and over and over again. But I think in, in general, it happens to everyone, especially in independent film. Uh, the bigger the opportunity gets, the, the bigger the, the kitchen needs to get to fit all the cooks. Um, 
and managing that uh, can can be difficult, uh, especially as an as an actor. So, uh, yeah, I definitely get your point. Um, you you mentioned being in a band. I'm, I'm curious, is that what led you to MTSU, Middle Tennessee State University? No, no, man. That's that's a whole story in itself. I've got a lot of stories, man. I I, stories. I wandered. My I my whole life is just as a vagabond. Um, I uh, I went to my first college that I went to, I went, I went to three schools. Um, mm. my first college I went to was Briarcliff university. I went there. I was on the track team. I did track and field for a season there. Um, I went there for a girl cause I had a huge crush on a girl. What was the name of the um, university? Briarcliff university. It's in Briar. Sioux city, Iowa. Wow. Yeah. Um, it's, it was, so I went to a, like an all boys prep school in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, <laughs> And it was, you know, it was actually a, a very mature school. I mean, the, it was, you didn't have the, the distraction of, you know, romantic entanglement, um, that you would in a, in a co-ed school. Um, so there wasn't, you know, when, when you remove, oh man, he's got a crush on her, but she's got a crush on him and, or, you know, all that stuff out of, out of the social equation of school. Mm-hmm. When you're a teenager, you 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 find that things become a lot more um, kind, and, <laughs> and so I didn't deal with that. And then I went to this school, which was like a, a student population of like 900 people. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. It was very small, which was smaller small, than I smaller went, than a high school. My, yeah. yeah, I mean, my school was was not a big school. It was a private prep school, but it was but it was bigger than that. I mean, it was, it was just over a thousand, I think. So, um, it was smaller than my school and certainly smaller than most of the high schools that most of the people from anywhere of the decent size went to. Um, and it was co-ed. And so I basically like did one year of high school again, mm-hmm. um, from the social side of things and kind of like the girl that I went there for just you know, like, that was a pipe dream. That was never going to happen. Um, but I'm a hopeless romantic and I was like, I'll make her, I will make her love me. Um, like, you know, you know, very, yeah, <laughs> and that, mm-hmm. that, obviously that never, that never works out. Nope. <laughs> nope. It doesn't. Um, but I didn't, you know, I didn't have a great experience. Um, I partied way too hard. Um, and it, and well, honestly, I partied way too hard and did way too well academically for as hard as I was partying. Um, so I'm also the kind of person that gets bored when I'm not challenged. So that was not a good situation for me in any way whatsoever. So I left there and um, went to the University of Nebraska Omaha for a couple of years because I tried to go to MTSU. Um, and then my dad had retired from the Air Force and couldn't go to we couldn't get in-state tuition. Um, uh, so <laughs> I wanted to go to MTSU mostly because it was close to home. Oh, um, yeah. but, but I, I sat around Omaha for a couple of years. Um, and before, uh, finally kind of getting the courage to strike out on my own, um, and, uh, and just do it and just transfer it into TSU. So I went there and I finished. What did you major um, in? Uh, international relations is what I majored in. I had started wanting to do, well, I wanted to go to film school. Um, my parents put the kibosh on that. Um, I think <laughs> mostly, mostly for, uh, I'd gotten into Columbia, um, Columbia, Chicago, um, which was a good film school. Um, there's, a, I think the, uh, I think the showrunner for the chai on, um, uh, I don't know. What is that on? Showtime. Showtime. I think mm-hmm. she, I think she went to 
Columbia, Chicago. Uh, Lena Waithe? Yeah. Um, actually, I know she went there. Yeah. Um, so she, but, uh, so it's, it's produced a few. It's like a sneaky, it's like a sneaky little film school. Uh, and she's a little bit older than I am, I think. So she would have been there um, before it even got like really good. Um, it, I don't think I would have, I didn't get really good until after I would have been gone as well. But, um, um, so I guess shout out to Columbia, Chicago, which I didn't go to. Um, <laughs> but, um, but it was just, you know, it, it was expensive. And at the time that they didn't have student housing at the time. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. so it was like, I would have to pay, I don't know, $36,000 a year, um, on a retired, you know, military, you say, you know, I mean, he still worked, worked, worked as a, you know, civilian for the military, but you know, on a military salary, it's not, you know, that's not going to happen. Um, and, and pay Chicago rent. Right. Um, so that would, yeah. Um, but so I, I'd done communications and, and then I just ended up taking a bunch of, I just like, cause I've just, you know, I just, I, I'm a vagabond. I follow, whatever interests me. So I ended up taking a bunch of philosophy classes and then, then a bunch of philosophy classes turned into a bunch of political philosophy classes, which turned into a bunch of political science classes. Cause I was, I like found a theme. I was like, Oh, that's interesting. I wonder how this affects this. So I started taking blue. And then by the time I was done, it was like, Oh, well, I guess I can spend another eight years in school or I can get a degree in political science and that's it. So I studied international relations. <laughs> yeah. And, and we kind of share that uh, experience. You know, I'm a, I'm a blue Raider as well from middle Tennessee and uh, state university. So uh, we're definitely a brethren in that regard, yeah. but also, you know, in my minor, I had a, re- a minor that, um, you know, my partner, Nick always says is the most ridiculously named minor ever. Uh, the minor was called urban studies. <laughs> yes. Means urban everything studies. and nothing at all at the yeah. same time. And, um, it part of urban, it was like this, um, it was the best minor ever, by the way. Um, because it, you would get uh, us history, which I loved, love, love. And you would get like, you know, black psychology, and then you would get political campaign management <laughs> all in one, all in one sort of offering. Um, nice. So it's really interesting mix. You'd get like civil planning and like, like what? Okay. Uh, like uh, you'd, you'd get uh, social movement and you'd learn about how to, you know, look up stats on, you know, the mortality rate of, uh, children in, in, you know, sub-Saharan Africa or something, you, you know, so it, mm-hmm. it was, it was this really interesting mix that, that opened your eyes to the larger world and let you see how systems work. And that's when I really got into, uh, you know, deep into politics, um, and just sort of developing a personal philosophy for myself. Oh, and by the way, there was philosophy mixed into that too. Uh, and a political philosophy for myself and started moving in that direction. And I was sort of just completely uh, bowled over and washed over by the sort of um, last fleeting days of my space where the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the Ron Paul campaign hit me hard and, and I didn't know who he was or anything. I just liked the ideas and um, got deep into, you know, sort of libertarianism, but um uh, to, to the degree that I was like a, uh, a district leader for, oh, wow. <laughs> for, that, for that 2008 campaign, which just on word of mouth, we got 10% of the vote, um, which, uh, you know, definitely helped 
you know, Barack Obama win. So, <laughs> so, so it, was, it was a little bit of a, of a win-win there. Um, but, but you, you, you went from there and, and sort of delved, you know, two feet into that as well, right? You started making political campaign ads and, and pieces. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. While I was in college, that's, 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 I did that while I was still in Omaha. It's one of the reasons that I stuck around Omaha for so long, I think it's because I found work doing that. And, and what, tell me what the difference is between, you know, what makes for a great political commercial, what makes for just a good ad for, let's say, a corporation? Because I know you've done both. Well, a, a good political ad, well, there's a couple different, there's a few different kinds. It depends on what kind of campaign you're running, really. Um, I mean, a good political ad is going to, it's, it's going to be memorable. It's going to be succinct. And you're going to walk and it's going to be black and white, um, not, you know, not color space, but, you know, it's it, 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 a good political ad leaves no room uh, or, well, let's let's be real. It leaves no room for anyone to question that the candidate is on your side of the issue mm. while never actually taking a position on the issue. OK, say that one more time, because that is very interesting. That last sentence is, is great. That is great. <laughs> a good political ad is is it's it's black and white. It, it 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 makes you believe that the candidate is 100 percent on your side of the issue while never actually taking a position on the issue. Wow. Yeah, wow. <laughs> it's wonderful, man. So what, what got you out of the game a little bit? Because I, I know you're pretty active um, politically, especially on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe a little too much. I, I'm not on Twitter as much as I used to be, probably because I was like, "Man, it's all—it's only politics on Twitter." Right. I got on Twitter because of politics, and so it's just like that's just the place where I rant politically. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just like yelling into the void. Um, but, uh, but but are you done making those type of uh, pieces, oh, or, or or would you do it again? I mean, I would not make any more hit pieces. I'm done making you know, the 3am phone call ad, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I didn't make that ad, but I wish I did. Um, it probably paid really well. Um, but I, you know, I, I, political ads are so, I mean, they're either really campy, you know, it's really like, hi, I'm like, I mean, here in Tennessee, you know, we have, it was Diane Black, you know, who has this, this palatial estate on old Hickory Lake. You know, all of her ads were shot inside of a barn. Like, look at me. I'm all folksy. And I'm just like you. My house has 140 rooms. It has seven wings. Like, I eat everything off of gold and it all has gold in it. But I'm just like you. Look at me. I'm stiff. I'm walking on railroad tracks. I've never been on a train, but... <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, I just, I, I there's just, some, just oh, make, just make, just make her relatable. That's it. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's, that. I mean, I would, if I found a candidate that I really believed in, and that's why I left politics in the first place, because I had just got so sick of it. That and I kind of got pushed out because I was, a, I was, I was, I, I didn't work for the Obama campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked in democratic politics and I didn't work for the Obama. I didn't get pushed out so much, but I just kept losing jobs Yeah. Um, to people who had, you know, been, you know, the communications director for, you know, the, you know, whatever third congressional district in Iowa, um, for the Obama campaign or like as, assistant communications director. And they're getting jobs, you know, as like the statewide director for something, um, 
you know, just because they had the Obama campaign in their resume. And I only, I, you know, I, I only worked in like, I did federal races, but I never did presidential. So, um, you know, I, I, you know, well, I guess never national organization of a presidential race, at least I worked on some state statewide stuff on, um, on a couple in the primaries, but, um, yeah, I mean, I just, yeah. So I, I, I kind of, I got, but I got sick of it cause it got really, it started getting really partisan. The right. democratic party got really, it got this really like left versus middle mentality when, it, once, once Obama got elected in it and it started getting really nasty, which we now see in the Republican party. And it's just like, I was just like, ah, I can't do this anymore. I'm out. I'm, I just gotta, I just gotta do, I, I just wanted to make movies, right? you know, you like I wake like, up and become a different animal. <laughs> yeah. and you didn't, you didn't yeah. even realize you had, you had morphed. Yeah. Um, like I, I'd only ever wanted to make movies. I started making ads, you know, cause it was, it got me around a camera, you know, it got me, it, it allowed me to do something somewhat creative and, and then, and then I, you know, I enjoyed the work. It was good work. You know, it's the, the, the function, the way that political campaigns operate, um, they, it's very similar, um, to the way that film sets operate, mm-hmm. you know, you know, very different jobs, but the, the hours and the, and the, and the, so the, the drama and the, the scale and, and, you know, the, the importance, you know, of, you know, everyday matters, um, kind of aspect of, of, of a campaign and a film, you know, they're very similar. I don't know if you've interviewed Chris Connor, um, who's a you know producer here in town, you know, works with hideout pictures a lot, but he also, no, not yet, but I would love to so yeah, want to pass that uh, along yeah, to Chris. Yeah. We yeah. can make that happen for sure. He, he, uh, he also used to work in politics. Um, and we, ha- we've had a few conversations about, about the similarities there, but, um, but it's, I mean, it's, yeah. And I, so I got, I think that that element of it is what, kept me doing that thing for so long, but I just, I needed to get out. I had to get out. I needed to get to Tennessee cause it's where I'm from, but kind of was never allowed to live. And I needed to explore my own creativity and, and really allow myself to, to pursue the career that I hadn't allowed myself to pursue before. Well, we're very thankful that you did. Um, tell me, uh, what is the origin story of Knox Hargrove? Oh God. Well, Knox Hargrove is a, <laughs> Knox Hargrove is a hermit, um, who lives in Warren County. Uh, he's a, he's a very close personal friend of mine. Um, and he, uh, he's just a writer, you know, that's all he does. Um, he just writes and, uh, and I'm just kind of, I'm just kind of the guy that just buries his words into the world. You know, he just does his thing there. Um, just in out, you know, in a, in a cabin in, in Warren County. And, uh, and, uh, and then he hands me the scripts and then, and I go make them for him. <laughs> this is so, so just for the listeners out there, it might be confused. Uh, Knox Hargrove is a sometimes pseudonym for your writing <laughs> alter ego, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, Knox Hargrove came about because, um, I, I, when you write, especially if you're not like, if you're not principally a writer, um, you know, you hand things to people and they're like, Oh no, it's great. I love it. Mm -hmm. And you never get real feedback. Um, 
but I kind of, you know, especially since I'm a producer and I, I, you know, and I, you know, I, and I run, you know, a screenplay competition as well. Uh, so storytellers. So like I had, I kind of had the, the opportunity to, you know, by virtue of what I do to, um, I see a lot of scripts, so it wouldn't be strange for me. And it's not, and I, and I pass scripts along, um, to get feedback from other people from time to time. Um, and so it was a way for me to pass my own writing along and get genuine feedback from people who are good at giving feedback that are friends of mine, but would not give me good feedback because they're afraid of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so they, so, and then the, and then the secret came out. <laughs> there it is. And then I there used it, it too much. How did you come up with the <laughs> and name now it's just itself? A fun joke. Uh, well, Hargrove is my mother's maiden name and Max, I was very, I was in a fraternity for a few years. Um, when I was in Omaha and Knox was my pledge name. So it was just kind of, it was a combination of my, of my fraternity pledge name and, and, uh, and my mother's maiden name. I love it, man. And it's a, it's a kick-ass name too. Like, like you could take it with you into, uh, so many industries. (laughs) I just, I liked it. I, I, it's just fun. I see that the thing about me is that I just like to mess with people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just, it's nice. It's, it's nice to have. It's just like a nice little thing that I have in my pocket Yeah, where, cause, cause where it's comedic. especially if I'm, yeah, yeah. If I'm with the right people too, cause we've, we've, you know, uh, I was, uh, in an audition a few months ago for a, a with, uh, for a, a, a thing, um, a short that, uh, that I'm, I'm making with a friend and, and, uh, it was a, you know, a script that I wrote and, um, <laughs> and the, 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 it's an actress that I, that I know, but I don't know well. Um, and I, she'd never, I'd never worked with her before. I just, I just knew her socially. And, and so she came in and, and she came in and was like, Oh, that's great. I'm so happy to be working with everybody. I think I know everybody on the project, but the writer, um, cause it was a short, so we sent her the whole script. We didn't send her sides. Um, and it's cause the name of the script was Knox Hargrove. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> yep, no, no, he's a hermit. He lives in Warren County and just, a, he's a good dude, but, uh, yeah, he doesn't really show his face a lot. You'll never see him. Yeah. It's, it's, it's at once <laughs> almost, uh, it, it's at once almost sort of like a, the name of a Southern sports writer. Uh, yeah. Uh, the hermit from Warren County. Uh, it, it, could, it could be in any uh, Anchorman uh, movie. Yeah. And then if you just ch- change the spelling slightly, it could be your porn name. Yeah. Instead of uh, K-N-O-X, you could go K-N-O-C-K-S. And then, and then, hard, and then hard instead, grove. yeah, hard. And so you yeah. add a D instead of hard grove. So it's, it's Knox hard grove. <laughs> yeah. And then, There's a lot of ways to go with it. Yeah. And then suddenly, you know, uh, you got a little, little thing going there. Well, hopefully, <laughs> you know, not a little thing, but <laughs> you got a big thing going there. Uh, cause you're, you're Knox hard grove. Um, yep. so, so yeah, thank you for giving me, um, that insight, man. That's, that's, that's awesome. And now I know when I see that name on a script who really wrote it. Um, yeah. My, my new, uh, my new, my newest thing is, is because, cause we, I blew the, 
you know, the, the lid off the, the Knox Argo thing has, it's been, you know, an open secret for a little while. Um, but I, I, I've now, my new, my new way to mess with people is in, as inspired by Knox Hargrove. Knox Hargrove has a favorite drink. <laughs> um, his favorite drink is, uh, is, is any whiskey. So long as it's not Jack Daniels black label, it's gotta be gentleman Jack or better. There you go. Um, uh, ginger beer and muddled limes over mm. ice mm. in a hot glass. It's called the Knox. Okay. Um, okay. So it, I have a little bar situation here at my house and whenever we have gatherings, which you'll have to come over sometime, I love to make cocktails for my, for the company here and for the guests. And it's gotten to the point where I'm sort of obsessive about, uh, the mix and the flavor and the, and the tone. So I'm going to tonight make myself a Knox. Yeah. And, uh, I'm going to use some you, fever tree ginger beer. Yes. I'm going to use some delicious organic, uh, lemons and limes. Yeah. Muddle, um, get a muddle. It's I'm gonna the muddle. muddle the you got to muddle. Out that's that's the way you do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm gonna muddle them, and then I'm gonna add some uh, gentleman Jack or better to that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. It's also good. I mean, I, if I was gonna suggest, if I was gonna suggest, well, I know Nice Hargo's his favorite whiskey is is Chattanooga Whiskey Company, 1861 Reserve, 1816s Reserve. Oh boy, I screwed it up now. Um, they're trying to whiskey company. That's, that's the one that really goes best with it, but, but, uh, that's a, that's a great whiskey, but, um, whiskey company. I've got some, I've got some bookers here. I've got some bib and Tucker and I've got some bullet and, uh, bullets to Tennessee honey. Yeah. Two rye and whiskey co. Got it. So I've got some different bourbons and whiskeys here. I've even I've, I've got some Bryn as well, which is like a French import that I believe in, and that uh, I mispronounced for two years as Brenet, <laughs> uh, because it's French. It's actually Bryn, and uh, but it is it has got like the best sort of nose and mouthfeel of of any whiskey. It's just gotta memory. be a good. It's just gonna be a good. It's gotta be a bourbon style. It's just gotta be. It can't be too can't be too rye. It's got to have that sweetness of a bourbon. You know, that's, that's cause they, cause if it's too much of a rye, it fights, it fights all the sweetness in the ginger beer. And then, and it hates the rye hate citrus. They don't, those don't go together. Well, they, they like bitter, but they don't like, they don't like sweet citrus. So that's, that's good you call. can't, you can't do that with a rye, but that's um, a good call. That's why I was thinking Tennessee honey would probably taste good with it. It would um, be fine. Yeah. Tennessee honey would be fine. Yeah, I might I might put my own little the, twist on the Knox. Not the best version of the drink you could make, but it will taste fine. Yeah, I'm gonna go regular version, then maybe the honey version, and maybe that's that would be my version of a Godfather and a Godmother. Let's say there you, go. you know. So now, um, now if you you can you can drink it without the hot glass, but if you order it at a bar. You have to order the knock. It's the way you order at a bar is you're like, I'd like a knox, please. And I'm going to say, what the fuck is that? And then you're going to tell them what it is. And at the end, you have to say, in a hot glass. And what's going to happen is they're going to look at you like you're crazy. And they're going to say, you want it in a hot glass. And you're going to say, yes, in a hot glass. It's not a knox unless you give it to me in a hot glass. I need the knox. And then the, they're probably going to ask you, you want, you want, this drink over ice in a hot glass. And you say, yes, I want the ice to melt quickly. 
Mm. And it's because the hot glass is really they're just to mess with the bartender. Yeah, because because I, I, I would imagine it's pretty. It's, it's more it's more difficult to get a hot glass than a cold glass. That's the issue. Yeah, yeah. It's like you have to put this glass in the dishwasher, pull it out, and then make the drink in it. Now, I used to be a waiter, and I've always said that everyone should wait tables once in their life, so they just um, absolutely they should one just so they understand the 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 life of a waiter and what they really make and how the government actually sort of triple dips. Um, and, and what do I mean? Ooh, triple dip. Yeah. Well, what I mean is, is waiters get paid less than $3 an hour and they get taxed on that. Um, mm. That's justifiable because they get t- tips, which they also get taxed on, but most tips are cash um, or can be cash um, or in any case, digital cash, which is coming from the consumer, which has already been taxed. So therefore, mm. Uh, the government triple dips uh, any any job that that gets tips is is either doubled or, or triple dipped. So that's one reason. But the second reason is just to understand what it means to actually serve someone now with and do it gracefully and do it with a sense of purpose. Now, that being said, that makes me no stranger to food service terrorism. And and if you ask for a warm glass in the wrong place, you might get a warm dick in your drink. And that will be a terrible way for you to enjoy the knocks. And, and, And so you have to do this in the right establishment, right? Yeah, you have to see. You have to go to. You have to go to a place like you don't. You don't go to a dive bar and order the knocks. You go to. It's you go. You you have to go to. You know, like a plate like in Nashville. You go to like like you know, Pearl Diver or, or Pinewood Social or, or better, or, you know, like somewhere that's like, they are just like, so free, you know, anywhere where the bartenders are wearing like leather aprons with like handcrafted bar tools in the pockets, you know, Mm. these kind of places, you know, where they, where everything is Edison bulbs and polished brass and it looks, you know, and they, they, you know, the, the, you know, the half the bartenders have sleeve tattoos and are wearing curled mustaches unironically, you know, it's, it's, that is where you go and you order the Knox because it, it, the whole, the whole reason the Knox was created is to mess with hipster bartenders. Because there you you, you order it at a hipster establishment and you make them think that it's like it's the new coolest thing, mm-hmm. okay. and you're like, hey, but you, but have you but but do you do it in a high glass? Because, <laughs> because you know, like like you know how it's like, like an episode of Portlandia. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. That is what it is for. Because it was because I created the drink and I only do things for my own entertainment, <laughs> and I go. like messing with hipsters, <laughs> and this was the perfect way to do it. Um, I did successfully order it not to, not from a hipster, but I did successfully order it, um, one time to hilarious. It was just great. I, I, oh man, it was great. I ordered it at, uh, the cheesecake factory in Santa Monica, <laughs> which I feel like is really the best place to order it. Like other than like a hipster, like if you're not going to do it just to mess with like hipster bartenders, right. who not think a hipster that, place. you know, yeah. mixology is like, is a religion. Um, like, like I feel like the cheesecake factory in Santa Monica is probably (laughs) maybe the best place that you can do it. (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, that's, that's, that's the best. That's the best. 
Um, okay, I'll keep that in mind. I'm actually in Santa Monica a lot, so yeah. I will I will go to the Cheesecake Factory <laughs> and ask for a warm mug <laughs> and, uh, and and give them the ingredients. You, you you've you've hooked me up for life now, man. This is awesome. Um, all right, so I, I promise I won't keep you much longer, but I have a couple more questions for yeah. you. Um, so uh, you you've been kind of on the record here um, in the local community here in Nashville. Um, as 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 a believer in acting and improv, uh, and, and how those things can potentially make you a better director and producer. So, I'm curious: can you expound upon that idea? Like, like, how do you think improv and, and acting specifically make you, or can make you, a better director or, or producer? Well, I, I mean, it's uh, improv. I mean, let me start with improv because improv is is it has so many invaluable skills. I, I, I am also on the record as hating improv. Um, <laughs> as like, as like a standalone format of performance. I think it is dumb. Um, I love sketch comedy, um, which improv informs. I love stand up comedy, which improv informs these improv is, is maybe, you know, I think, I think, you know, to a degree for, for standup is, is a necessary thing. Certainly doesn't hurt people getting better at it. You know, it's obviously necessary for sketch comedy. Um, I don't, I, I, I would never go to an improv show. I would go to a sketch show, but I would never go to an improv. I think it's so dumb, but go to an improv class and be a part of a, you know, and, and be a part of a, you know, a, whatever, an improv team that, that it's just, you know, doing improv, you know, as an exercise for something else is, is so invaluable, uh, you know, and, you know, just, I mean, beyond just the film industry is valuable because it just, it teaches you how to think of your feet. It teaches you how to, how to, you know, communicate with other people, non, non non-verbally, um, and pick up on, you know, nonverbal messages from other people, you know, body, uh, body language and, and all that, you know, and, and timing and everything. And, and so, which are all very important skills that are applicable to any, just about any, any role. And I'm not saying, you know, we don't need a, a, a wave of, of people trying to be grips and, and gaffers and sound guys rushing to improv classes across America. But, um, cause you know, maybe not necessarily for them, but you know, definitely for, for directors, um, you know, and I mean, for directors, for sure, the, the worst thing that a director can do on set is freeze up. Um, yeah. you know, when, when they, when, and it happens to every director, I mean, especially if you're, you're a young director and, and you're still learning, like, you know, you get to that, every director has one moment of indecision. Mm-hmm. At least, you know, like even the best directors have a moment of indecision where they have to step away and, and talk to a producer. Or they have to step away and talk to their first AD or somebody, to their DP and, you know, whoever they have that relationship with. And, and hopefully they can resolve it. But, but you know, it, if you can, you can avoid that and you can, I think you can create better, you know, if, if you, if you have those skills of being able to think of your, think on your feet and, and create in the moment, which is what improv does. You know, it, it allows you to be creative in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, you know, just like an actor can use that improv skill to, you know, 
expand on dialogue or, or, or riff with another actor in a scene, a director can use that, that those skills to see things differently, you know, and see, you know, because if you shot list and you can storyboard and you can do all that and then you can get into the location and you get set design and whatever, and you see and what you get it lit and everything, you know, especially at the, at the indie level, you don't, you know, I mean, you don't have the benefit of, of all of these pre-shoots and, and, you know, you don't, and, and camera tests and, and studio space where you're building sets and you, and you have total control, you know, you're in, you're in locations and, and you got to rely on it. So, you know, you can kind of shot list for the space or, you know, you, maybe you get to scout the space a couple times, but you don't necessarily get to really be in there, um, to really map it out and, and block it out. So if you get in, so, you know, if you're directing, you get into a space, you know, instead of getting married to your shot list or getting married to, you know, your concept of the idea and saying, well, uh, you know, I, I thought that this was going to look prettier. You know, I, I, I just, you know, I thought the light was going to be coming from here instead of here or whatever, you know, if you have that comfort, that the skills that you'll learn at improv can help you be more comfortable saying, you know what? No, let's, we're going to move the camera around. We're going to do this. You know, this is a more, uh, this is a better looking shot. We're going to do this or, or, or with the, or when you're working with the actors, you know, you know, being like, okay, you know what, this isn't working. Let's do this. You know, let's go off script and let's do this. Let me work you through it. You know, that that's, I think that's an invaluable skill for directors. Um, you know, and, and as a producer, I think, you know, you know, and that's, and obviously, you know, acting class as well for a director, you know, that's a necessity. Yeah. If you are, want to be a director, you must take an acting class because you can't be a director if you don't know how actors think and work. It's so funny because I I was going to ask you, you know, if you had, you know, 30 days to teach someone how to direct, um, you know, what were the, be the first three things you would teach them, you know? Um, but you're kind of answering it in this answer. It's, it's, it's really, it's really interesting. Um, but, but continue. Yeah. So on this idea of having to make sure that you take an acting class to direct, yeah, go, keep, yeah. keep going. Sorry to interject. Yeah, no, I mean, you, I mean, you have to, you have to, it has to be, you have to know how actors work because you can't just, if, if what, I don't, I don't understand directors who, who don't care about the actors. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't understand directors who, who don't care about the actor's process. Um, I, th- I think it's selfish and I think it's dumb and it's, and it doesn't make sense to me. And I don't think they should be a director. I think they should be a producer or an AD or a DP. You know, if you're, if the only thing a director sees is, is the, the frame, you know, and the light, then they're, they're not a director. You know, right. that's the, you're there to, you're there to, to work with the actors. And, and if you, you're not going to be uh, the best director you can be, that doesn't mean you can't be a good director. If you don't take an acting class, it's not, I'm not saying that, but, but you know, you're not going to be the best director that you can be if you don't understand the way that actors think and work. And so the best way to do that is to spend time with actors. And the best way to do that professionally is to take an acting class and really, and not just spend time with actors in the acting class, but actually commit yourself to acting, you know, take it. I mean, that's what I, I spent the last, I spent about a year and a half taking classes at the fourth wall acting studio in, in Nashville, um, which is a great studio. Um, and that's why I started there is just because, you know, I wanted to, um, 
you know, I was like, well, you know, I like intellectually, I know this. And it's, it was really, it was really, that alone was an interesting experience for me. Cause I got about six months in and I was like, I don't know. I mean, okay, I guess like I get actors, like actors are actors. <laughs> and I realized, and I was like, and I, I you know, I did a little self-evaluation. I was like, I made friends and it was fun. and I was hanging out and, you know, I got to see some cool actors and there were certainly people that I, you know, that I got to meet and, and that was all great, but I didn't necessarily feel like I was getting what I, you know, my, my professional goal out of it. Right. And I realized for me approaching it as a director, what had happened is that I didn't, I, because I was approaching it as a director, I was not invested in the work I was doing. Interesting. Yeah. And so I was like, well, you know, I don't really have to try. Like, I mean, I'm going to try. I mean, you know, I'm going to do, I don't, I'm not, not, not going to not try, but you know, you know, the level of dedication that some of the other people that I was taking this class with were committing to the work. I was not committing, you know, I was, you know, I've always been very good at very fast memorization. So sometimes I'm going to class having memorized, you know, the scene, you know, the hour before and I'm off, I'm off book and I've got it memorized, but that's a lot different than sitting with it and making choices and knowing your character and knowing your motivations for, you know, why you're doing this in the scene and that you're going to do this in the scene. And, you know, and I'm, I mean, I'm a believe I'm, I'm a big believer in improvising in a scene and, and letting the the flow of the scene, you know, I don't, I don't believe in, in making a lot of choices before you go into a scene. Um, but like if you're having a fight and you know that there's a moment where there's an emotional turn and you've really got to mess with somebody mm-hmm. to fuck them up, like if you can sit with it and plug something in that you know is going to fuck them up, mm-hmm. that's way better than spending, you know, trying to do it in the moment, mm-hmm. you know, cause you can, yeah. cause you can throw them off balance, you know, and you can be like, and then that, and then, and then it's on, you know, you, right. you get a, you know, and, and that's, and, and, and I wasn't doing that. And once I started doing that, I was like, Oh no, okay, this is totally different. Like now I understand, like I understand the process and it, and it has completely changed my approach to directing. Um, you know, that. it really has. Cause I was a director I didn't have a problem with line reads. I thought it was, I, I, cause I did, I don't think I respected actors. Um, I, I don't think I did. I mean, I thought I did, but I don't think I did. You know, it, it was, you know, there's, there's a, I, 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 I would, I would give a line read and, and it wasn't cynical, but I would give line reads without even thinking about why, you know, cause it was all about me. It was all about what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I was in up until, a year ago, probably every, everything that I did, or a year, maybe two years ago, a year and a half ago. Um, cause it's been a little more than that since I was in, but you know, I, I, every, my perspective, I, I never considered what an actor, I never al- allowed an actor to really bring their own perspective to the role. Right. Um, right you know, at least intentionally, you know, it, it was, you know, it was always, okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's, that, that's okay. But, but say it exactly like this and that's terrible. And I hate that. And I like, I'm embarrassed to say that I used to do that. Um, You're now I was, of that uh, business rule, which is, you know, never tell your employees how to innovate. Yeah. Yes, exactly. You know, it's, 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 you know, it, you know, it, and it really did. It changed my, cause your cat, you have to cast, you know, you have to cast knowing that 
the you have to cast because because you want in that audition you want that audition to shine on screen you know that you want that actor everything not just the look not just the 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 tone of their voice not not you know not just you know how they're going to look in in wardrobe or or makeup or whatever you know you want you have to cast them as a performer to to interpret that role and to inhabit that character and to and to bring to it what they will and then you as the director have to roll with that and then you have to find a way to get your vision across through their interpretation of the character and I think all of my work that I have done, which is I haven't directed a lot, um, but I've directed a little bit since then. And I think and I've I've definitely seen a, a huge improvement in, in the work that I've done um, just because of that. I mean, I, I can't I can't recommend it highly enough. And I'll say as a producer. You know, improv is, you know, again, same as same as a producer is thinking on your feet. Producers have to think on their feet all the time. Like yeah. thinking creatively is, you know, it's more, you know, that's, it's, the, you know, the reason that it, I think producers should take improv is, is because, um, you know, the same reason that, that I think business people should take improv because it allows you to think creatively in the moment. Um, you know, and those are applicable skills to, to, you know, business, you know, right. And, and producing um, nothing, nothing's going to happen the way you think it's going to happen. No, so. not at all. Um, and if you, and if you can, and listen, you know, like, you know, people recommend improv for you to be better at, you know, public speaking and all that kind of stuff. You think if you can't, if if you can't be a relatable public speaker, you don't have to be an orator or anything like that. You don't have to be like a super dynamic salesperson or something like that as a producer, but, but, you know, you got to make deals, especially at the indie level, which is where I live, you know, like you, you gotta, you know, you, if you're somewhere where you're, you you know, you got a budget for a hundred of a hundred bucks for a location, you know, you, you that's not going to, you're not going to be like, Hey, I've got a hundred dollars. Uh, let's, uh, let me use your whole restaurant for 12 hours. They're not <laughs> right. going to say yes. You know, <laughs> right? <laughs> that's, that's not going to, sorry, next look, next, next option. Right. Um, you know, you gotta, you gotta know how to, you gotta know how to, to, to tell the story and, and to get them on board with what you're doing. And, and, you know, having those, those skills that improv will give you is definitely going to help with, with those kind of aspects of, of what you're going to be doing as a producer. I think as far as acting class goes, you know, acting, knowing actors as, as a producer has helped me um, just as much as it has as a director, because again, it's a respect for the process. You know, producers do have a say, uh, especially again, at the end of level, you know, you know, if you're a hands-on producer, you're, you're probably working more closely with the director, um, than you are. And a lot of times you're also the casting director, you know, it's, you know, it, you know, a lot of, a lot of indie, indie films, you know, you can spend 10 grand on a casting director or you can spend 10 grand on a name, on a name to come in for a few days. Right. You know, which one are you going to do? You're going to spend 10 grand on the name cause that's going to be what sells your movie. Um, you know, it's, so it's, you know, so a lot of times you're, so knowing the process and understanding actors as a producer is, is also great because it's going to help you through the audition process. It's going to help you. It's just going to help you understand actors. If you work in this business and you don't understand actors, even if you're a grip or a gaffer or, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, you still have to interact with actors. Right. Um, but definitely as a producer, 
if you're coming in because actors are, I mean, actors are people and they are all different. And some of them are, you know, you know, there's, there's like, especially when you're a producer, cause I love, I know, I know many producers and some of them hate actors and some of them love actors. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a producer who loves actors. I work with a few producers who hate actors. Um, and that's because some actors are very aloof and they're very, I'm an actor and they're very artistic and they're very, you know, artsy. They're not, art- a lot of people are artistic, you know, artsy is the word that, you know, that right. gives you the, uh, the sense of what, what kind of person they are, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, and they're, and it's, and they can be volatile and they can be emotional and it's because of what they do, you know, and some of them aren't, some of them are just like, you know, they're Bubba from around the corner and you'd never know that they're an actor until they turn it on. Um, but you, you're dealing with all of that. And then they, and then some of them, you know, you get into a pre-production meeting, you know, and you meet them and you're like, Hey, hey," and it's like, cool, it's going to be great. And then they get on set and they get into character and then they're a totally different person. And if you don't understand the way that actors prep and you don't understand the way that actors perform, then it's a lot harder to do your job. You know, it, you know, you, if it's, you know, <clears throat> cause you're the one, if you're, if somebody's coming in and, and, you know, talking and is, you know, if an actor, if there's an, if there's a talent issue on set and you're the producer, you're the one resolving the talent issue. Right. So if you don't understand how the talent works, it, you know, you're they, be... it's, it's how they work on screen, but the acting class is going to help you understand how the way they work on screen informs their off screen life, you know? So it's, it's, it's so valuable. Well, man, that is an incredible answer and um, so valuable to, I think everyone that would uh, be listening to this in hopes of becoming a better director, a better producer, and perhaps even just a better crew member on set. Um, and, and I can't thank you enough, Nathan, for your for your time and, and all your energy and insight. Uh, t- tell everybody where they can find you on social media. Um, I think I'm pretty universally the same at this point. I'm, I'm at Mr. Nathan Edwards, I think, on everything. Lucky. Um, yeah, I, I think I, I got lucky. There's only like 8,000 Nathan Edwards in America or across <laughs> the world. Um, so I, Mr. Nathan Edwards apparently had not been taken, which was great. Um, so I think that I know I'm that on Instagram. It. I think I'm that on, I'm pretty sure I'm that on Twitter. I'm not on Twitter that often, but, um, but I'm there. I hear that's a thing uh, that people care about Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. I like, I just like posting artsy photos on Instagram these days, but, um, uh, and then, uh, I've got a directing page on Facebook, which is just Nathan Edwards, I think. And then, uh, my company's Grand Divisions Production Company, and we're at uh, Grand Divisions Creative on Instagram. We're not on Twitter, and we're also that on Facebook. So, and you guys yeah. have a website, Grand Division Grand Divisions Grand Divisions Productions Perfect. Yeah, everyone, go visit that. Uh, you can learn so much about Nathan there, including uh, his Southern Storytellers podcast and screenwriting contest. Uh, Nathan is also gracious enough to head up and and um, uh, organize a filmmaker's breakfast once a month. And uh, I just went to my first one. I had a blast and I, I can't wait to go to the next one and shake hands, meet and greet and, uh, you know, sort of talk about what everyone's excited about. So, Nate, uh, in, until the next one or unless we see each other beforehand, thank you so yeah. much again. And, and Thanks, man. Uh, 
this is this has been cannot believe uh it's been an hour plus like it felt like it's been <laughs> 10 minutes it's, it's been yeah, a fun conversation yeah man it's been great thanks for having me on anytime talk soon man all right see you. bye You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find out more information on this week's creative, including links to their projects and social media feeds, please visit our website at www.bonsai.film forward slash make it. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative. If you do that, the show will pop right up. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step toward your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Show Me How to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative be engaged. And thank you for listening.